This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Dagon by H.P. Lovecraft. It's read by Oliver Wyman. It runs 16 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterwards. Dagon by H.P. Lovecraft. Read for you by Oliver Wyman. I am writing this under an appreciable mental strain, since by tonight I shall be no more. Penniless, and at the end of my supply of the drug which alone makes life endurable, I can bear the torture no longer and shall cast myself from this garret window into the squalid street below. Do not think from my slavery to morphine that I am a weakling or a degenerate. When you have read these hastily scrawled pages, you may guess, though never fully realize, why it is that I must have forgetfulness or death. It was in one of the most open and least frequented parts of the broad Pacific that the packet of which I was supercargo fell a victim to the German sea raider. The Great War was then at its very beginning, and the ocean forces of the Hun had not completely sunk to their later degradation, so that our vessel was made a legitimate prize, whilst we of her crew were treated with all the fairness and consideration due us as naval prisoners. So liberal indeed was the discipline of our captors that, Five days after we were taken, I managed to escape, alone, in a small boat, with water and provisions for a good length of time. When I finally found myself adrift and free, I had but little idea of my surroundings. Never a competent navigator, I could only guess vaguely by the sun and stars that I was somewhat south of the equator. Of the longitude I knew nothing, and no island or coastline was in sight. The weather kept fair, and for uncounted days I drifted aimlessly beneath the scorching sun, waiting either for some passing ship or to be cast on the shores of some habitable land. But neither ship nor land appeared, and I began to despair in my solitude upon the heaving vastnesses of unbroken blue. The change happened whilst I slept. Its details I shall never know, for my slumber, though troubled and dream-infested, was continuous. When at last I awakened, it was to discover myself half-sucked into a slimy expanse of hellish black mire, which extended about me in monotonous undulations as far as I could see, and in which my boat lay grounded some distance away. Though one might well imagine that my first sensation would be of wonder at so prodigious and unexpected a transformation of scenery, I was in reality more horrified than astonished. For there was in the air and in the rotting soil a sinister quality, which chilled me to the very core. The region was putrid with the carcasses of decaying fish and of other less describable things which I saw protruding from the nasty mud of the unending plain. Perhaps I should not hope to convey in mere words the unutterable hideousness that can dwell in absolute silence and barren immensity. There was nothing within hearing, and nothing in sight, save a vast reach of black slime. 
Yet the very completeness of the stillness and the homogeneity of the landscape oppressed me with a nauseating fear. The sun was blazing down from a sky which seemed to me almost black in its cloudless cruelty, as though reflecting the inky marsh beneath my feet. As I crawled into the stranded boat, I realized that only one theory could explain my position. Through some unprecedented volcanic upheaval, a portion of the ocean floor must have been thrown to the surface, exposing regions which for innumerable millions of years had lain hidden under unfathomable watery depths. So great was the extent of the new land which had risen beneath me that I could not detect the faintest noise of the surging ocean, strain my ears as I might. Nor were there any sea-fowl to prey upon the dead things. For several hours I sat thinking or brooding in the boat, which lay upon its side and afforded a slight shade as the sun moved across the heavens. As the day progressed, the ground lost some of its stickiness and seemed likely to dry sufficiently for traveling purposes in a short time. That night I slept but little, and the next day I made for myself a pack containing food and water preparatory to an overland journey in search of the vanished sea and possible rescue. On the third morning I found the soil dry enough to walk upon with ease. The odor of the fish was maddening. But I was too much concerned with graver things to mind so slight an evil, and set out boldly for an unknown goal. All day I forged steadily westward, guided by a faraway hummock which rose higher than any other elevation on the rolling desert. That night I encamped, and on the following day still traveled toward the hummock, though that object seemed scarcely nearer than when I had first espied it. By the fourth evening I attained the base of the mound, which turned out to be much higher than it had appeared from a distance, an intervening valley setting it out in sharper relief from the general surface. Too weary to ascend, I slept in the shadow of the hill. I know not why my dreams were so wild that night, but ere the waning and fantastically gibbous moon had risen far above the eastern plain, I was awake in a cold perspiration, determined to sleep no more. Such visions as I had experienced were too much for me to endure again, and in the glow of the moon I saw how unwise I had been to travel by day. Without the glare of the parching sun, my journey would have cost me less energy, Indeed, I now felt quite able to perform the ascent which had deterred me at sunset. Picking up my pack, I started for the crest of the eminence. I have said that the unbroken monotony of the rolling plain was a source of vague horror to me. But I think my horror was greater when I gained the summit of the mound and looked down the other side into an immeasurable pit or canyon whose black recesses the moon had not yet soared high enough to illumine. I felt myself on the edge of the world, peering over the rim into a fathomless chaos of eternal night. Through my terror ran curious reminiscences of paradise lost and Satan's hideous climb through the unfashioned realms of darkness. As the moon climbed higher in the sky, 
I began to see that the slopes of the valley were not quite so perpendicular as I had imagined. Ledges and outcroppings of rock afforded fairly easy footholds for a descent, whilst after a drop of a few hundred feet, the declivity became very gradual. Urged on by an impulse which I cannot definitely analyze, I scrambled with difficulty down the rocks and stood on the gentler slope beneath, gazing into the Stygian deeps where no light had yet penetrated. All at once, my attention was captured by a vast and singular object on the opposite slope, which rose steeply about a hundred yards ahead of me, an object that gleamed whitely in the newly bestowed rays of the ascending moon. That it was merely a gigantic piece of stone, I soon assured myself, but I was conscious of a distinct impression that its contour and position were not altogether the work of nature. A closer scrutiny filled me with sensations I cannot express, for despite its enormous magnitude and its position in an abyss which had yawned at the bottom of the sea since the world was young, I perceived beyond a doubt that the strange object was a well-shaped monolith whose massive bulk had known the workmanship and perhaps the worship of living and thinking creatures. Dazed and frightened, yet not without a certain thrill of the scientist's or archaeologist's delight, I examined my surroundings more closely. The moon, now near the zenith, shone weirdly and vividly upon the towering steeps that hemmed in the chasm and revealed the fact that a far-flung body of water flowed at the bottom, winding out of sight in both directions, and almost lapping my feet as I stood on the slope. Across the chasm, the wavelets washed the base of the Cyclopean monolith, on whose surface I could now trace both inscriptions and crude sculptures. The writing was in a system of hieroglyphics unknown to me, and unlike anything I had ever seen in books— consisting for the most part of conventionalized aquatic symbols, such as fishes, eels, octopi, crustaceans, mollusks, whales, and the like. Several characters obviously represented marine things which are unknown to the modern world, but whose decomposing forms I had observed on the ocean-risen plain. It was the pictorial carving, however that did most to hold me spellbound. Plainly visible across the intervening water, on account of their enormous size, was an array of bas-reliefs whose subjects would have excited the envy of a doré. I think that these things were supposed to depict men, at least a certain sort of men, though the creatures were shown disporting like fishes in the waters of some marine grotto, paying homage at some monolithic shrine which appeared to be under the waves as well. Of their faces and forms, I dare not speak in detail, for the mere remembrance makes me grow faint, grotesque beyond the imagination of a Poe or a Bulwer. They were damnably human in general outline, despite webbed hands and feet, shockingly wide and flabby lips, glassy, bulging eyes, and other features less pleasant to recall. Curiously enough, they seemed to have been chiseled badly out of proportion with their scenic background, 
for one of the creatures was shown in the act of killing a whale, represented as but little larger than himself. I remarked, as I say, their grotesqueness and strange size, but in a moment decided that they were merely the imaginary gods of some primitive fishing or seafaring tribe, some tribe whose last descendant had perished eras before the first ancestor of the Piltdown or Neanderthal man was born. Awestruck at this unexpected glimpse into a past beyond the conception of the most daring anthropologist, I stood musing whilst the moon cast queer reflections on the silent channel before me. Then, suddenly, I saw it. With only a slight churning to mark its rise to the surface, the thing slid into view above the dark waters. Vast, polyphemus-like, and loathsome, it darted like a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith, about which it flung its gigantic scaly arms, the while it bowed its hideous head and gave vent to certain measured sounds. I think I went mad then. Of my frantic ascent of the slope and cliff, and of my delirious journey back to the stranded boat, I remember little. I believe I sang a great deal and laughed oddly when I was unable to sing. I have indistinct recollections of a great storm some time after I reached the boat. At any rate, I knew that I heard peals of thunder and other tones which nature utters only in her wildest moods. When I came out of the shadows, I was in a San Francisco hospital brought thither by the captain of the American ship which had picked up my boat in mid-ocean. In my delirium I had said much, but found that my words had been given scant attention. Of any land upheaval in the Pacific my rescuers knew nothing, nor did I deem it necessary to insist upon a thing which I knew they could not believe. Once I sought out a celebrated ethnologist, and amused him with peculiar questions regarding the ancient Philistine legend of Dagon, the fish god. But soon perceiving that he was hopelessly conventional, I did not press my inquiries. It is at night, especially when the moon is gibbous and waning, that I see the thing. I tried morphine, but the drug has given only transient surcease, and has drawn me into its clutches as a hopeless slave. So now I am to end it all, having written a full account for the information or the contemptuous amusement of my fellow men. Often I ask myself if it could not all have been a pure phantasm, a mere freak of fever as I lay sun-stricken and raving in the open boat after my escape from the German man-of-war. This I ask myself, but ever does there come before me a hideously vivid vision in reply. I cannot think of the deep sea without shuddering at the nameless things that may at this very moment be crawling and floundering on its slimy bed, worshipping their ancient stone idols and carving their own detestable likenesses on submarine obelisks of water-soaked granite. I dream of a day when they may rise above the billows 
to drag down in their reeking talons the remnants of puny, war-exhausted mankind, of a day when the land shall sink and the dark ocean floor shall ascend amidst universal pandemonium. The end is near. I hear a noise at the door, as of some immense, slippery body lumbering against it. It shall not find me. God, that hand. The window. The window. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Monumental Strain, but I'm Paul. <laughs> Hi, I'm Marissa. And Ali Wyman here. And we're going to talk about your narration of Dagon by H.P. Lovecraft, uh, written a hundred years ago and published uh, a couple of times uh, in 1919 and then 1923, the very first uh, Lovecraft story in Weird Tales, actually. And I think it's the one that most people start with if they are starting in the beginning. There are ones... Mm -hmm published earlier in sort of amateur magazines but this is this is the beginning in a certain sense huh. um why did you choose that one to re record for soundcloud and uh, is it because <laughs> it's short um that's yeah that's pretty much the, <laughs> it's it's short it's it's well known it's it's got every, i mean it, it's 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 one of my favorites. It's not mm. my absolute favorite, mm, I but talk about uh, yeah, what that might be. But basically, it's sure. Uh, Mountains of Madness, hands down. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, that's, hands down. It's long and ponderous. The opposite of this. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's. But I I love one of the things I love about Lovecraft is that in virtually all of his stories, the narrator is in is insane. Yeah, <laughs> has gone has gone you know he's he's gone mad with fear mm -hmm. um and 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 it's the i i actually in, in listening back to and i i'm i may be mispronouncing it now that you say dagon mm. I, I i don't I, think there's a official pronunciation i know but uh i when i first when i first when i listened back to it i was thinking i didn't go far enough with the the insanity and the fear, there's a uh, I, I don't know if you know Pete Rollick. He does uh, sounds familiar. He does these wonderful books that are sort of continuations of the the Cthulhu myths. Um, he uh, he did a book. Oh God, I can't. Who's the 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 character in? Um, Oh Jesus! I can't. My brain—it's gone. The, the the story about the deep ones, Shadow over Innsmouth. Uh yeah. The 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 guy that's turning into a deep one. Yeah, right? the narrator. Um, he's he's the, he did a book. This guy Rollick did a book that I recorded, and and it's that guy who's narrating the book, and he's slowly turning into a deep one, and he's going. He's literally he's literally mad as he begins. But I asked him if he had an idea for the author's, for the narrator's voice, and he said, the whole time I was writing this, I heard Crispin Glover. <laughs> wow. So I, I he went was making a great a, crazy man uh, in a Lovecraft yes. story, right? So I did that, and some of the some of the reviews on Audible are are painful. Oh. They just say that they couldn't listen to. You know, like five hours of me <laughs> talking like this. It's just like a little too much after a while. And uh, so I, I get that. That's a great I, Crispin uh, Glover impersonation. Thank you. I, I, I'm a huge fan. Love, yeah. 
love his work. Love watching crazy people on stage. Yeah, yeah, him and terrific. Christopher Walken are two of my favorites. Oh, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the cadences are so good. Yeah. Um, well, I didn't actually realize you were the narrator for the. I only just clicked when you said that for the short story that we listened to. But um, that was a really good reading. I really enjoyed. Yeah, yeah. How this was performed. Yeah. Thank you. Thank I you was so thinking much. though that um, uh, there's there's something wrong with it, and I realized like uh, as I was going through it this morning, I've got the highlighter going, and then I'm like, wait a second, and so listen to this. Uh, this is the second paragraph. It was one of the most open and least frequented parts of the Pacific that the packet of which I was supercargo fell victim to the German Sea Raider. The Great War was then at its very beginning. So it's 1914 or 1915, right? Uh Uh, The Great War was at its very beginning, and the enemy's navy had not reached its later degree of ruthlessness. This guy's not an American. Or if he is an American, he's working on a British or other ship. Isn't that interesting? Right, right, because it's pre-Lusitania. Yeah, it's pre-Lusitania. America doesn't join until 1917. So he's either a Canadian or he's uh, an American uh, working on on a British ship, which is entirely possible. Um, I I doubt Lovecraft cared that much about that particular detail because it's, it's from a dream, of course, like almost everything he ever wrote. Like, literally, almost everything he ever wrote. It's it's so obvious once you start, like, going through this. Oh, wow, this story is that story. That story is the same story. It's over and over again. Um, I believe somewhere on the Wikipedia entry it does say it was uh, inspired by a dream. Um, yeah, I think it does say So, uh, you know, the fact that the, the narrator is a Lovecraft standing who's not actually American, um, or if he is, he's, you know, working for the British... Um, that's pretty interesting. Huh. Is that, I didn't yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't show up in, in the story. It doesn't say anything particularly strange about the Americans or anything like that. So there's no I, internal evidence other than that. Should it should it have been narrated with a British accent? Uh, he could have, maybe that was your Canadian accent. <laughs> I, yeah, I was funny because I was trying to go for a, like a mid-Atlantic because I thought, uh, how do people talk a hundred years ago? Not, you know, <laughs> not, and and clearly this is an educated fellow, just from yeah, just yeah. from the way, just from the words he uses. Mm. I mean, it's, so so I tried to give him this mid-Atlantic sort of educated voice, but I could have gone more British. No, that that I, probably. I, 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 it's strange because you know most of his stuff is it's narrated just from some yeah, uh, top right hand corner of the United States guy, right? Yeah, um, but. There are a, a, a few where it's a British character. Um, you know, there's a couple set in Ireland and and uh, and in the UK, um, but typically they're you know Americans moving there as well. But um, it's it's just interesting that you know uh, he throws in that element of the war for almost no reason. Um, hmm. Just the fact that he's out in an open boat. Uh, he could start. He could have started with a, you know, there was a storm and the ship sank, and I was the only one who got in the boat. He starts. He he's he's sort of interested in World War One at the time, and there's other stories. One from a German submarine captain's point of view. So it's 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 the same idea. The temple, that one, again, undersea like monsters. It, mm-hmm. I feel like it was a little bit because 
to kind of like push that post-traumatic stress sure sort of psychosis yeah. as well like if mm. if he's been at war you kind of have more of an excuse to think whether this is all real or is he just yeah. gone completely mad from what he's yeah. seeing going yeah, from it, one horror to another mm. yeah right Right, it helps accentuate the idea that is he imagining all this? Did he dream all this? Did it really happen? If it was just a storm, that wouldn't quite have the same resonance as well being going through a war experience, which mm-hmm. definitely could break somebody's mind in that way. So it does add to, I agree with Marissa, that ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Um, uh, the other thing that really struck me on the first page of this three-page story, I, I'm looking at the original from Weird Tales. I I assume that's the one I sent to all you guys. I, I don't know if I'd actually send it now that I think about it. No. No? No. Okay. No, I'm, I'm just reading the text on the H.P. Lovecraft page. Yeah, oh, me too. Okay. Well, um, uh, mine has an illustration. It's not a great illustration, <laughs> but um, not like the one I sent you guys on Twitter. Um, <laughs> my own. Um, I, oh, that was great. <laughs> I, I, I enjoy your art, Jesse. <laughs> me too. So do I. I enjoy, I enjoy doing it. Um, making people look crazy, and I also did the Le- a Lego version. You guys saw that, right? Yeah, yeah. that was great. Oh, that's brilliant. Uh, yeah, it's very hard to uh, carve a whole bunch of uh, symbols into the Lego, so I, I sort of went impressionistic <laughs> in that. Part. Oh, I wish you had. Yeah. Um, uh, what really struck me on the first page, um, other than the you know this must be like a UK or you know, British Empire guy, is mm-hmm. that when he wakes up outside he wakes up on this upheaved rock he's outside of the boat he's not in the boat it's actually he's quite far away from the boat in fact Mm. um he says i'll just read it here the change i love this line the change happened while i slept what the fuck does that mean right what is the change because he was in, in the previous sentence I began to despair in my solitude upon the heaving vastnesses of unbroken blue and beautiful line. Then the change happened whilst I slept. Its details I shall never know, for my slumber, though troubled and dream-infested, what a great word, was continuous. When at last I awakened, it was to discover myself half-sucked into the slimy expanse of hellish black mire which extended about me in monotonous undulations as far as I could see, and in which my boat lay grounded some distance away. So it's not mm-hmm. like he, you know, he his boat landed and then it tipped over and he fell out of it. He's like not in the boat at all. And he's yeah. actually some distance away. And he's sort of swallowed up, half swallowed up by the slimy bed of the ocean. Yeah. Which is... So the change is that this, the surface of the ocean... Totally, right? Has disappeared for the seafloor to to rise up around him and knock him out of the boat. But I love how the surface of the ground matches the surface of the oceans, right? So the heaving vastnesses of unbroken blue is suddenly transformed into undulating black mire. And uh, I, I tried to... I couldn't get past the first few minutes of the second season of Stranger Things, you know, because <laughs> I'm not much for sequels, but um, they had that that you know the underworld or whatever they call it again, and it's it's exactly yeah. that. It's the same world, but sort of what they call it, the upside down, right? Yeah. Um, this is a very powerful image of you know sort of being stranded at the bottom of the ocean, uh, walking among the mire. Um, 
and it it's it's from a dream apparently i just thought that was an incredibly striking image that he's not actually even in the boat right he's somehow been thrown clear of the boat and been sucked into the into the liquid mm. without having awakened like wouldn't yeah. you notice that <laughs> wouldn't you notice all that water <laughs> draining from around you uh, <laughs> i would think being sucked into black slime yeah and it's uh, i started to think about how sexual the images are in this and i'm not one who normally goes around you know saying this is is this is an imagery for you know freudian this or, but then in doing uh, in doing those two illustrations right and it's the <laughs> one that everybody does right if you like not in this original weird tales it's just a guy in a boat Although there is a vast sort of thing in the sky above him. Everybody illustrates the scene where he sees the creature uh, climbing up the monolith. Yeah. I mean, it's the one that we're all drawn to. And and I was like, why is that such a powerful scene? Because it's the one with the monster. I guess. But, you know, it's not like, you know, filing its nails. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not it's not you know eating some of the corpses that lay on the surface of the uh, ocean's floor there it's it's a it's a, a incredibly striking image and i want to i want to talk more about that but i want to see what you guys thought about what's going on in the first page <laughs> it's only three pages only three pages well we we st- we we start off with uh we, it, it's a frame. It's a framing story because we start off in the mm-hmm. actual, in after the events have all occurred, and he's recollecting the events that have led, that are leading him to his inevitable demise. So then, then he casts back himself, his mind to, to the Great War. We don't quite know how long he's been mad. The story never quite makes that clear. No. How long after, after these events that he actually. Uh, has been suffering. I mean, he, he just says he's run out of money for morphine. So he has been suffering for weeks, months, years. We don't know. The longer I would think it is, the worse it would be, worse and more horrible it would be. That's like, maybe he's been suffering for five years. Well, three years along. at least, right? Because if it's 1914 and it's first written in 1917, it's it's about three years, I would say. It can't be, you know, I mean, this, it, it, the later publication, 1923. So uh, if, if, if publication matters at all, it's if at the, least three years of, of torture of a certain kind, right? Right. Maybe four, so, four years. So we never quite realized, well, why was he on that boat in the first place? Yeah. He's, it was he's, he was he's super, super cargo. cargo. Yeah. Which yeah, is, which means he, yeah, it's an important position on a ship. Uh, no, I, it's not. It's not really. It's really, really means that he's really just a passenger. Yes, he's a. Yeah, he says he's not a navigator. Right. Right. Yeah. He. He. he, I mean, he's really just looking at the. uh, He's just looking over the materials on board. Yeah. That's 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 what that's what he does. I mean, he's supercargo to the, which kind of also goes back to what you were saying. Well, is he an American Mm -hmm. or Canadian? It's unlikely that American would be supercargo on a British ship. It's possible, uh, you know. Uh, it's a merchant ship. It's not a. Um, it's not a commercial. It's not a you know a war vessel. 
No, but it, it, it seems more plausible that he's the nationality of the yeah. actual ship, and Absolutely. therefore it's a British or Canadian. Yeah. Why, why is there there. a British ship in the Pacific, though? Well, you know, Hong Kong and Australia. Hong Kong and Singapore. Yeah, that, 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 that's definitely eminently plausible. There, were, there, were, there was, you know, some action in the South Pacific. Not much in World War One, more in World War Two, for the British mm. ships. Um, you know, German. I don't know that the German U-boats were doing that much damage in the Pacific in World War One, but they they did a mm. little bit. Yeah, my knowledge of World War One naval war was is virtually non-existent. It's pretty interesting. I'm a, I, it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely it's, it's, fascinating. It's got it really some. Re- uh, it's got some really amazing stuff going on, actually. Uh, mostly in Europe, of course, but um, mm. World War II's got this. It's 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 pretty interesting. Um, when I read Supercargo, you know, the third or fourth time, that actually reminded me of the great Edgar Allan Poe novel, the only one that exists. Um, which is eluding my memory. Oh, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. Yeah. Yes, we, yes, we we did an episode on that. That's right, and I believe uh, we get uh, a character. Was the main character a supercargo? Because he he certainly spends his time in the cargo. Um, I think he he uh, is not supercargo. He just happens to be doing the job of a supercargo. Is in he's inspecting the cargo because he's hiding in there. Um, but there, it is, you know, it was, there's no naval vessel in that either. It's a, uh, merchant, merchant ship that, uh, courts disaster. And of course, there's also the story of, um, the island of Dr. Moreau, which is, uh, pre, pre, pre this, it's late 19th century, 1898 or so. Um, and that has, starts with a great, uh, opening where there's three men in a boat in an open boat mm-hmm. having um, been sunk in the middle of the ocean after having crashed their ship in the night into another ship. So imagine that in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, two ships in the middle of the night crash into each other and both sink. That's like two spaceships, you know, traveling through intergalactic space and smashing <laughs> into each other. Uh, <laughs> hmm, not very likely, right? It's not like not air- very likely. Not like airplanes, right? Uh, that are you know sort of heading to the same destination, um, and and so the narrative of a guy you know in an open boat and whatever he says when he comes back from that, um, kind of suspect. It's designed to be that way, and I love that we actually have the own the the character himself saying. Are you, yeah, I'm pretty sure uh, there's some. I, I'm pretty sure there's some evidence that I'm not 100% here. <laughs> I mean, he says, <laughs> "I went. I think I went mad then." Uh, and what were you before that? When you were, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, asleep and woke up um, in the middle of a mire in the bottom of the ocean. Um, that you know, the unprecedented upheaving of a, a volcanically of a. Bottom of the ocean never happened in history. <laughs> well, well, it, it, it's a, a reverse Atlantean myth, basically. Yes. I mean, Atlantis is the story of an island kingdom that drowns. There's also Lemuria and Mu, and uh, in that same vein, mm. w- which also both drown. Uh, but here we have a land that upwells and becomes viable again. It's it's a it's 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 a it's a reverse and. 
that land is not populated by people or even was people. It's populated by pre pre-human horrors. It's it. it, it yeah. So, so I, I, so I wonder if uh, Lovecraft had read, like, say, Ignatius Donnelly and combined with the string thought, like, okay, I will do Atlantis in reverse. Mm. <laughs> There's a term. I think it's also. Oh, sorry. sorry. No, no, you go on. I was going to say, I think it's also important where that um, I think I went mad then is because that kind of tells us um, that it's not all just like post-traumatic stress disorder from the war he's he's basically telling us this is all happening and it's all real and he doesn't go mad until this later point in the story so like the, the psychosis that we're hearing about is because all of this is real totally there's a story um i did for my other podcast called um the uncharted isle it's a clark ashton smith story mm-hmm. really interesting story and it's i think inspired by this one um it's also, uh, interestingly, kind of an inspiration for uh, King Kong. Um, it starts with... Uh, I'll just read the opening uh, uh, paragraph here. I do not know how long I had been drifting in the boat. There are several days and nights that I remember only alternate blackness... Uh, well, sorry, blanks of grayness and darkness. And after these, there came a phantasmagoric eternity of delirium an indeterminate lapse into pitch-black oblivion. The sea water I had swallowed must have received me, for when I came to myself, I was lying at the bottom of the boat, with my head a little lifted in the stern, and six inches of brine lapping at my lips. I was gasping and strangling uh, with the mouthfuls I had taken. The boat was tossing roughly, with more water coming over the sides, and at each toss I could hear the sound of the breakers not far away. So that sound he's hearing is a sh- is a shore and an island and it's an uncharted island he goes on to the uh, island and he sees people in strange dress um going about their daily lives but they can't seem to see him he can wander like the invisible man in a certain sense into every house into every uh palace and and eventually he sees a scene uh, very similar in effect to the one that is so prominent in this story, um, in which the people of the island uh, who he has surmised are worried about an, a coming apocalypse, even though he can't hear their words. Uh, everything is silent on the island. It's very interesting. Um, he sees that they are worried about some sort of disaster, like maybe the island's going to sink or something, right? And so mm-hmm. when he eventually goes into a temple, he sees that the people are making sacrifices to a god, uh, which is in statute in the temple, and it is a uh, giant gorilla, um, which, uh, appearing like a statue, suddenly reaches out and takes one of the babies from the humans. And then he finds himself in his own boat again, uh, rowing madly away from the island. <laughs> um, but at the end, um, instead of just the manuscript, as we have here, um, he has the oars from the island, which are quite I- interesting and decorative, right? Um, very much inspired by this style of story where you've got a, a character alone, can't corroborate his story very well, going mad starts with a dream opening sequence it's it's a super powerful kind of i don't know 
style of storytelling. Hmm. It seems it reminds me actually of the the story I did for the last podcast I did with mm. you guys the 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 red one the red what was one it? I love that story so much yeah so uh, do you, can you can you recount it for our companions who are not yet read it yeah our fools oh, for not having yet read it it's, <laughs> it's so been good three years all I remember is the big red thing there is the, <laughs> there is the big red thing. wait is it, is it a Lovecraft story it it it's, feels like a Lovecraft story. It really does. Uh, it is it? Jack London. Jack London. Okay. And oh. I, I, I've got it pretty well memorized because I love it so much. I, I, I have gone back and listened to that one, I must admit. Um, so please. Yeah. <laughs> so it starts with a Jack London-esque character who uh, is hunting on it's New Guinea or Borneo um, for giant butterflies. And he's got a shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a shotgun for shooting shotgun? giant butterflies because the the butterflies are huge. They're like this. Uh, well, they're moths actually. Um, they're uh, as wide. I don't know, six feet wide or something like that. It's ridiculous, uh, but real. <laughs> also, they it's like Atlas moth. I think is one of them. Anyways, um, he comes. He goes quite deep into this sort of uncharted territory. Um, he gets wounded and wakes up in a. A temple, oh no, not a temple, a hut, uh, about which uh, in the rafters are hanging many heads, um, which are being shrunken, I guess. Um, yes. Then the narrator um, meets a, I think he's the narrator, maybe not. Um, the char- main character meets a juju man, basically, um, who tells him about these heads and how his head's going to be hanging there soon. <laughs> <laughs> Outside of the hut, I love this part too, is a um, breadfruit tree, which if you know what breadfruit looks like, they are the size of human heads. So it's it's loaded with heads just like inside the hut, right? And uh, he uh, hears about the red one, goes inland to see it. Um, and it's basically, there's this valley, and carved into the valley is a mine, and the people on the island worship the thing in this mine uh, that's, you know, half exposed, but they mine beneath it. A giant red sphere, um, and they have uh, some evidence, you know, in their own carvings that it was an alien spaceship, and that the... the uh, occupants are gone or within and it's like wow just super powerful weird story and it's totally told from the perspective of a, a delirious dying man mm. right is that what you recall and, and of it yes uh-huh. and that and that nothing is revealed right that it's it's just it is the most enigmatic story of of you know i was i was kind of waiting for payoff or denouement you know something like oh and then they come out and kill everyone but no, yeah there's no. And I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't remember if i mentioned this when we did that recording but I, I i've subsequently discovered it if not then um and that is that uh ancient astronauts were not a thing until that story and then the next year um some dude started writing about ancient astronauts like you just read the story really isn't that mm-hmm. interesting that's very interesting. It, it, stories very really influence people, and it, it's—I mean—that whole 
a lot of my 1980s book shopping experience was ruined by Eric Von Daniken books. <laughs> I'd go in and say, oh, good, look at that. And half of them were Eric Von Daniken's uh, Chariots of the Gods. Chariots of the Gods. Oh, my God. I'm uh, so glad not to have to see those anymore on, on the bookshelf. Chariots of the Gods and Life After Life. Yeah, oh, so many of those terrible <laughs> books that everybody was reading, apparently. Oh, yeah. I mean, I read them, too, but I was like, what the fuck? This doesn't make any sense. That That's a... That's a hummingbird. Why would aliens make hummingbirds? <laughs> but the thing, the red one is is very bizarre for a Jack London story. I don't know that. I mean, does he have any other stories like that? Yeah, he's got I a thought, few. I thought all all of his stories were about huskies and dying in the snow. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> that's the thing is is you know that's what he's known for, right? Is everybody knows and the actually they know three. His big three are. Uh, White Call Fang, Wild. Call of the Wild, and The Sea Wolf, which is a sea story, right? Uh-huh. Um, but he he was totally into science fiction. He wrote a short story. Um, uh, there's another narrator who uh, I'm, I might even do a show on with. Um, he, apparently, it's his favorite uh, story from that era, um, in which there are two, I think they might even be brothers, who are scientists, and they both uh, are in a competition to create... Uh, a, a way to be in, become invisible, and one uses one technique and the other uses another technique. One uses sort of a chemical technique and the other uses a camouflage technique, um, and it's basically a retelling of the Invisible Man, but with sort of hard-ass um, bastards instead of uh, sort of just <laughs> dilettante assholes, which is what H.G. Wells was, you know, famous for writing. Um, Jack London was totally into science fiction, if there was such a thing at the time. He wrote, uh, there's a short story uh, book of his short stories that are sort of that. Um, he wrote a lot of those pre-historical romance stories, you know, mm-hmm. where you've got cavemen inventing bows and arrows and that sort of thing. Ugh. And one of his best stories, a super short story, um, is, uh, it has the feeling of a science fiction story, even though there's no supernatural elements or much at all. It's basically, it's um, it's called To Build a Fire. And it's just about a guy who's freezing to death. Oh, um, oh yes, that story is always a gut to the punch to my gut whenever I read it. Yeah, there's two there's two things that really make it feel SF-y. Uh, one is um, when he talks about why the cold is there. When he talks about sort of the coldness of space reaching down, right, um, being tipped away, and you know the fact that you—it's it, very hard SF in a certain sense. You know about how at a certain temperature, you know you just can't do, you can't operate. Um, the guy needs a fucking spacesuit, is what it is. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's that same feeling you get when uh, you, you know uh, Luke Skywalker's freezing to death on Hoth and. Uh, yeah, Han Solo cuts open the uh, the tauntaun and shoves him inside, right? Right, um, right. Because that's the only thing that could save him, right? Right, right. Because he because he talks about have an animal. I think I don't know if it was a horse or something else, or that they had done it to. And then he contemplates doing it to the dog so he can just warm right. up his hands and relight the fire. And the poor dog, and the is dog like, is nope, wiser than the man. 
And it's like, I'm not, I'm not sticking around with you, bud. You, yeah, you're, and that's, that's the turn, right? And, and what's so interesting about Jack London, and it's right in his most famous work, which is Call of the Wild. It's looking at the world from another perspective, right? From an alien perspective, which is the dog's perspective. I love that book so much, huh. Call of the Wild, because it, you see it in, in this short story as well. The dog becomes the main character at the end of the story. And he says, you know, the wisdom of of men is is mysterious. They seem to have access to food that we do not, um, and yet their wisdom does not extend to all things, right? He doesn't know that he should not do what he's doing right there, right? He's yeah. that's going to right, and it sort of leaves him because of this failure of wisdom. He's he's totally an SF guy, um, but he's been characterized as you know the Huskies and. Mushing guy. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised you haven't mentioned the Iron Heel. Well, yeah, the, well, the Iron Heel is a dystopia, but it's more poli- – he was really into politics. Right, right but, it's, but it's a future dystopia. It's political, but it's a future dystopia. It's totally yeah. SF. It is SF, but the the thing is, is it's mostly lectures. I'm not – advocating we read it it's kind of dry i've already done a show on it but yeah oh have you oh (laughs) yeah yeah i I, i've actually put the whole audiobook out as well but oh yeah we're sort of getting into the jack london territory here instead of uh, go back to lovecraft (laughs) (laughs) so so, Uh, it's just it's it's this it's the same period and this this doesn't feel like uh science fiction at all it's it and it doesn't quite feel like fantasy either it's more like apocalyptic uh dream fiction if if there is such a genre because mm. the ending, I want to. I've got some stuff that I, I, you know, I highlighted, and then I put stars around. Then I like put little boxes around it. So mm-hmm. I, I want to read this, and because I think this could be read a different way. This is the second end of the second to last paragraph of the story. Okay. All right. I cannot think of the deep sea without shuddering at the nameless things that may, at this very moment, be be crawling and floundering on its slimy bed, worshipping their ancient stone idols and carving their own detestable likenesses on submarine obelisks of water-soaked granite. And that's like, ooh, yeah, I hate I hate thinking of uh, clams in their clammy beds and like, yeah, I'm not a big seafood fan, right? <laughs> Either. But that's not the part and, that and gets And you live me. in Vancouver, shame on I know, I know. And I'm a sea guy. I like being out on boats and all that stuff, but I, as a kid, I caught uh, a sea cucumber, Oof. and if you've ever seen a sea cucumber, they're fucking monsters, man. <laughs> Holy <laughs> fuck! They're so freaky. You caught a sea monster, and now you won't eat fish, though you live in a port city. Uh, they just sea wills. I will eat fish. I just won't eat, you know, the things that crawl on the on the bottom of the ocean. I am it's with like you. It. I don't eat invertebrates, and I don't eat seafood at all. And and when I was a kid, I like tuna. Uh, okay, yeah, I'll eat tuna with enough, like, you know, mayonnaise and mustard in there. But there you but, go. but when I was a kid, uh, a horseshoe crab, I went to the beach when I was little, and I'd never seen anything in the water. And a horseshoe crab crawled over my foot. And and, and <laughs> no. I saw it, and I was just like, you know, it looks like a trilobite, trilobite. I was just like, yeah, what? Yeah. That is, it completely freaked me out. And, of course, I, I told this story to friends later, and, and it div- the, the rumor devolved into – um, Oliver won't go into the water because he's afraid fish will touch him. 
So uh, <laughs> this is. Uh, I would like to dispel that, that. You know, I, they would, no. I'm not afraid of going in the water, but I was freaked out by a horseshoe crab when I was when I was four or five, and I first went in the water. So that's when my, I was about eight uh, or nine. Um, I was on the dock, as I was often on the dock, and when I was around eight or nine, and there was a uh, uh, some trapper, um, you know, crab trapper guy, and he was. You know, decrabbing de-tra- his crab trap, mm-hmm. and uh, he did something wrong, and the crab got him <laughs> by both hands. Ooh. So he had one hand sort of in the grasp of the of the the claw, and the other hand in the grasp of the claw, and it was quite painful, right? Because they're they're very strong, they're good at clamping, right? Yeah. Um, and the way he solved this, he tore the crab apart ripped his arms right and left and it you know it uh, and then uh the strength of the the strength of the crab's grip was stronger than the strength of its limbs well i was gonna say i think i may i went mad then but (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was it was it was it was like you know one of those things that that's pretty horrific (laughs) it was pretty traumatic yeah on the other hand when I arrived in New Zealand, Marissa, where did I go first? Inspired by you. Oh, I think you went to Piha first. I went to the beach, yes. Mm-hmm. Because I had not been near an ocean in so long. I wanted to see the ocean again. And Marissa told me about the beautiful beach at Piha. And that's where I went, driving in the dark and the rain and on the wrong side of the road. But hopefully it yeah. was actually beautiful and not like, You've seen the black, black slime with sea creatures and... <laughs> Different that, kind of beach. Yeah, yeah. The deep ones were not <laughs> invading New Zealand that day, thankfully. Yeah. Um, I didn't send you guys the audio drama called Dagon War of the Worlds. I I was thinking it's not really connected. I I, 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 I own it so I can talk about it. Yeah, so I, I was thinking it's not really connected so I don't need to send it. But now, after going through it with my pen... Um, and that I didn't actually get to that last paragraph, that last part of the paragraph that I think is the inspiration for, in part, uh, the Dagon War of the World. Um, and I think it's worth thinking about, especially if you read it in a so, sort of subversive way, maybe not the way Lovecraft intended. Because this is the right after that obelisks of water-soaked granite, it goes like this: I dream of a day. When they may rise above the billows to drag down in their reeking talons the remnants of puny, war-exhausted mankind. Uh Of a day when the land shall sink and the dark ocean floor shall ascend amidst universal pandemonium. So, when he says, I dream of a day, (laughs) I think... Yeah, go for it. Oh, I was just—it sounds to me like he's looking forward to it. Yeah, like he's—he's <laughs> yeah. he's like, like, just end it, just end this. And there are days not around this time that yeah. I feel the same way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, totally. Bring but, on the, the deep ones, the great. But old I don't—I—I I don't think it can. It, I don't think it may be even designed to be only read one way. I think, I think that it might be because one of the reasons he's killing himself is because he's so freaked out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he's gone mad. Is he freaked out by his fellow men, or is yeah. he freaked out by what he saw, what the I trauma that he saw? I think it's both, and I think it's yeah. really relatable. Like 
uh, like as Ali was saying, like right now, like because sometimes when you look at what's happening with our species right now, like I fear what's coming for all of us, but I kind of sure. also think it's about time and hap. Like I'm just Good. like, oh, yeah, like <laughs> maybe we should all just get wiped off this planet. We're fucking useless. So yeah. I can kind of see it. Like you can have both of those thoughts at the same time and just be like, it's going to be hor- horrible. And I'm afraid of it, but also like, eh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and if you are right, Jesse, and this story is intended to be taking place in say 1917 during the height of the war, yeah. Then, he, then those the horrors of the war, the horrors of trench warfare, would just mm. make him think like, "Yep, humans are in are inhuman to humans. Let's just have bring on the deep ones and end end our inhumanity to each other and destroy uh destroy it all because we can't be trusted to to handle handle it. We have to. Mm. You might you might as well have the apocalypse to a uh, to keep us from uh, killing ourselves mm. in this horrible, barbaric ways, which makes me think of side note of Keith Roberts Pavane. Mm-hmm. Um, have you re- you've read it, Jesse? Haven't you? I have not. Um, I, Scott has read it and reviewed it, and uh, Luke Burge has read it and okay. reviewed it, so, so I know it fairly well, even though I've never read it. Yep. So for for those listeners who don't know, it's an old history where uh, the Catholic Church takes control of technology and suppresses everything. And it turns out that fairies are all behind it. And the reason why they did this to hold back humanity's development of war and technology is because they saw the future where they saw the future of the world war two and concentration camps and fire bombings and world war one, all that stuff. And they wanted to stop humanity from doing it. So they basically changed history to try to step away from those, uh, the devastation of the early 20th century. Yeah, I have some sympathy for that. Yeah. I was. Uh, it, it's, say- it's meant that you have sympathy. Or like, yes, they've destroyed. Yes, they've taken over the world, but they did it for a re- for reasons to try to avoid even worse evils, the ones that we ourselves faced. Right. I was thinking um, with all the yeah. I, I don't pay a lot, uh, very close attention to the news because. You know, it's, it, I think you're foolish to do so uh, a lot of the time. Um, research history is better, is my my thing. Spend your time researching history. Um, however, um, I did it did break through into my uh, reality that apparently some dude went crazy in uh, Las Vegas. Oh, um, yeah. yes. And I was thinking, like, well, what what causes people to do stuff like that? Like, I understand country music is not for everybody, but that can't be. <laughs> The reason, right? There, there, he, there's some sort of like, you know, generalizable anger and the desire to kill oneself and all that. So, this story sort of fits in with that. But I also found myself expressing just, you know, with the general tenor of, of the way things are going, as Marissa was saying earlier. Um, I was thinking, you know, I gotta read more about what the Unabomber was saying, because. <laughs> You know, he was a really smart guy. There, there's no question about that. And his goal, as stated, you know, it, it's not completely insane. You know, obviously he, he was a kind of crazy, but he's he's not pointing at nothing. He's pointing at something and just sort of coming to a frightening conclusion that uh, I don't think I want to take, which is, you know, got to take them all down and uh, everyone has to do their best to, to do that. I, I'm more like, no, hide and read history and... Do a podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but well, like uh, this this really speaks to that, don't you think? 
Mm-hmm. The um, uh, Dagon. Dagon. Yeah, yeah. Just the the sense that sent that sentence. I dream of a day yeah. when they may rise above the billows, right? And then, in thinking about how this is a a penned narrative, right? He even says, you know, at the beginning, when you have read these hastily scrawled pages, you may guess, though never fully realize, what it is that that I must have for, that why it is that I must have forgetfulness or death, right? So morphine's, he's run out of money for morphine. Apparently it's expensive. Um, and also, you know, he has no money, I guess, because he's jobless in, in the, a foreign country or something. Well, I, th- but, I really suspect that, that Lovecraft felt that, that, that his inspiration for writing these stories is the same inspiration I have for, for reading them. Mm. It's, it's, it's horror that is beyond the the horror we know that is that is that dwarfs the horror of reality right. and it's and it's so it's like oh this is refreshing this is really it's so nice to read about yeah, no somebody's putting are, a name on it right yeah like saying that yeah this, totally this guy look 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 what he's saying right and and yeah. for instance my my wife and i were watching um house of cards currently mm-hmm. so the mm-hmm. show with, about <laughs> about horrible Machiavellian, Machiavellian yep. politicians. Um, yep. And it's, and I'm watching this and I'm like, wow, I kind of, it's like nostalgia. It's like, I, I miss when, yeah. you know, when politicians were just sort of evil and not horribly yep. corrupt and inept. <laughs> and well, they were yeah. corrupt and inept. It's just that, um, you know, they hit it very well compared to some. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't flaunt yeah. their ineptitude. No, well, yeah. I mean that—that—that's the other thing is they're the opposite of inept, right? On that show, we we are rooting for them because they are so devious and clever, and they manage to get out of all the problems that they cause, right? Yeah. That's we sympathize with them because they're because you know their ambition is is massive, but they're. Their ability to get things done is also massive. Right. I, I I've been rewatching the entire series. In fact, I just finished uh, the, the end of season five a couple of days ago because I wanted a different political reality. And yes, the Underwoods do evil things. They kill people. They hurt people physically. And yet, it's now turned to a fantasy of competence, as Jesse said, because they actually yeah. try to do stuff. In a way that, yeah, the current administrations just fumble and beckless around. The, the Underwoods yeah, are in a, evil, in but a they're kind of realistic way too. Because you know, if, if you guys had watched that Vietnam series that's on PBS, um, one of the things that you know I I knew about it, but I was reminded of was that Kennedy knew that they couldn't win in South Vietnam, but he had to keep on it because if he didn't, he wouldn't win re-election. Because that his his opponent would point to that as a failure. Well, mm. thank you, Obama, <laughs> for continuing Bush's war. Uh, what for both your terms? And well, the the current guy's not going to stop it because he doesn't know what the fuck's going on. Doesn't can't place the places on the map, right? Doesn't care about it. Mm. Um, so that the illusion of, of competence is is um, is kind of. It's a nice illusion, but uh, it, those sh- illusions have been shattered. Um, I want to I want to point to the last paragraph as well because in thinking about how this is a uh, written narrative by a dude, I didn't notice it again until this uh, very close reading. 
Um, the end is near, he says. I hear a noise at the door. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's the landlady saying, Why pay your bill? Or whatever. <laughs> As of some immense slippery body <laughs> lumbering <laughs> against it. I love that. That That is also practically every line in the shadow of, out of Innsmouth, right? That yeah. same scene is, is, you know, he jumps out the window in this exact same way, right? And climbs up on the roof and oh, yeah. runs away. Oh, it's it's right, awesome. Yes. Um, and what, what I love about that turn is that in that story, we eventually find out, oh, he's one of them. And that's why he's sort of repulsed, mm. right? Um, because it's a fear that he has within him, it's sort of a, a knowledge that is bubbling below the surface, but which he can't put name to until, you know, years later when he's looking in the mirror and says, my eyes are looking a little bit bulgy. <laughs> Um, but listen to this last part. It says, uh, the immense slippery body lumbering against it, it shall not find me, right? It being the immense slippery body. But then listen, God, comma, that hand. First time I read that, I'm like, oh, it's like the hand's coming, like they do- open the, it opened the door somehow, and it's sticking his hand in the door, right? It's coming through. Oh, and then he too. says, the window, the window, right? <laughs> I love that he's, wait. I'm upset. I'm going to write the window, comma, the window, <laughs> exclamation point, <laughs> right? Uh, which is, you know, the everyone makes fun of this in every Lovecraft story, right? How the narrator is describing his demise very, you know, how he's being digested slowly. Uh, but he's still got his hand out and it's still scrawling on the paper. Yeah. Um, but in another way... Uh, you could say not the hand is the hand of the slippery body coming, you know, opening the door, but rather the hand is the hand before him, scrawling on the paper. Never thought of that. that. Right? Yeah, that's creepy. It is really huh. interesting. So, 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 so are you suggesting that he might, in fact, re- really be changing himself and he just only really realizes this now? I, I mean, I think that 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 is not necessarily what Lovecraft had in mind at this point, but it's totally within the text. And he I'm, says, I, I, you know, go for it. Yeah, we're pre-shadow over Innsmouth, so maybe he's not subconsciously thinking of tri- of the the transformative nature. Subconsciously, of the I think he's thinking of all of this. Right? It's very hard to know what's going on beneath the surface of a mind. Right. But it, the fact that it comes out later explicitly. Indicates that all of this is going on. I I just can't yeah. get past the fact that you know when I am doing the modeling of that Lego and I'm doing the modeling of the of the drawing and then I'm doing the modeling of uh, or just re- reading and seeing other people's drawings, it's the same image over and over again. There's a sexuality that is freaking him out. I think beyond just you know going to bed and having a scary dream and you know seeing. There's something about being eaten, right? That's similar to... I mean, kissing is kind of the same thing, right? It's like somebody's putting their mouth on you. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. kind of weird in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> no, no, That's not, what I... I always have to 
I talk about that sometimes with the the authors when I'm editing the work. Uh-huh. Like when people try to write about sex and they yeah. start trying to do all the details and stuff. It's like, ew, ew, ew. Like if when you start talking about it like that, like detail yeah. by detail, it sounds like a horrific thing. Like just it is. Yeah. <laughs> like you you can't go into that much that many specifics like beat by beat of what's actually you happening. You have to draw Can a veil start... over some of it. You yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> it is all like kind of weird when you start thinking about it mechanically. Totally. <laughs> um. Uh, and you know what are the so one of the the other questions I I had is you know on the we get a, quite a bit of description of the carvings and the bas reliefs on the on the statue or not statue the um, monolith. Um, one of them is of a giant man-like creature fighting uh, a full-size whale, but the they're of equal proportion or a similar proportion, right? Yeah. Right. So if we were to re- read these as deep ones, right, um, then that can't be correct because deep yeah. ones from later in smell. Like I, I'm not a person who says, you know, that each story is interconnected. Not at all. I think they're all independent. But um, if we imagine that, that that is an exception, right, are we supposed to... What's uh, that's the other thing is what size is this monolith and what size is the creature that crawls upon it that w- most people would call Dagon. Mm-hmm. Is it is it as big as a man or well, is he it say, much bigger? He says it's a gigantic piece of stone. Yeah. But that doesn't tell you like dimensions, right? That, that so doesn't tell you dimensions. It only suggests that it. I mean, a gigantic piece of stone is. Presumably, much larger than a man. Presumably. Presumably. But he says polyphemus-like. Yes. And, and cyclopean. Is, yes, yeah. and he uses those terms in uh, the Call of Cthulhu as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think cyclopean's actually in this one. Yes. But it is. polyphemus is a cyclops. Yeah. Oh no, well, there it is, cyclopean monolith. You're right. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. it's definitely huge. Yeah. But I he, think he that definitely reference. refers. Sorry, carry on. No, it's, he refers to the creature as polyphemus-like. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, so I think we can assume that it is giant, and, and it's that it his, is right because it's a, he's a, the whole thing about a cyclops, a cyclopean stones, right? Is the idea is that no man could lift that. Um, mm-hmm. This is actually from you know archaeologists saying, um, you know, this this construction, this uh, castle in. Greece or whatever, you know, this temple or whatever it is, no human could possibly have lifted this. Of course, we know that that's not correct technically, because yeah. people's that, people did, but um, yeah, the yeah the 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 Bronze Age pre Bronze Age class Mycenaean tombs are right. The that's classic exactly Cyclopean what I'm thinking construction. of. Construction, yeah, right. So that's what they're talking about, right? Um, it's it's a, a massive stone, um, but by saying that it's a Cyclopean monolith. Um, and then naming the creature up as a vast polyphemus-like. I love polyphemus-like is one word, by the way. <laughs> There's yeah. no dash or anything there. Polyphemus-like um, creature. It belongs to the creature in a certain sense, right? And when it when it comes out of the out of the water, um, it what does it do? It clings to the thing. It climbs it up f- the thing. It flung its gigantic about which 
it flung its gigantic scaly arms. So it, if it's flinging its arms around the monolith, mm. I think we can assume that it is it's massive in itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, it's also it's mine. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> what precious. the hell? It's climbing you know, <laughs> That might be it. interpretation though, because when I read that, I was yeah. imagining it almost like a child clinging to its mother or like a something yeah. worshipping a god. Like, you know, this kind of like it's got its head bowed and it's give, it gave vent to certain measured sounds. Like oh that just sounds Oh my god, yeah. What the hell does that mean? It's almost mm. like it's in heat. Right. Yeah, we're we're not told now. Des is going to hate this. We're not told the gender of this. No, this creature. We're not told. You 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 could go for a totally Freudian interpretation of the monolith and the creature. The creature is female. The monolith is male phallus. You know. Uh, it. I'm not going to go crazy. It's right there. Listen to this. Um. Uh, well, we just quoted most of it, but right. Um. Vast polyphemus-like and loathsome, it darted... So, loathsome is a judgment, right? (laughs) It darted like a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith about which it flung its gigantic scaly arms while it bowed its hideous head. Why is it bowing its hideous head? And gave vent to certain measured sounds. And I I love, you know, he doesn't say what those sounds are like. Certain Mm -hmm. measured sounds. Certain is one of his favorite words. (laughs) Right, because it it means absolutely nothing, but is very specific. <laughs> mm. um, measured sounds, and then the next line. I think I made. I went mad then, right? Uh, well, in what way did he go mad? Um, it's like, man, that's hot. <laughs> like what? I don't know. I saw it as really like more religious. I think like I was just yeah. imagining it as more like a religious chanting, like bowing its head and kind of. But yeah, it could be more of a sexual thing, but. It is kind of open to interpretation. It's fitting with the religious in the next paragraph. Um, And this is, I mean, this is a good sign that you're going mad. I I think this is also in the Call of Cthulhu. I remembered little. I believe I sang a great deal. (laughs) You do that in church too, right? (laughs) And laughed oddly when I was unable to sing. I have indistinct recollections of a great storm sometime after I reached the boat. At any rate, I do not know. And then he says, I heard great, I heard peals of thunder, right? As in a church or a wedding, right? Right. And uh, look, you one could one could say uh, one is over-reading things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's possible. However, the power of the story itself, the fact that this is the story that introduced people in, in the general public to Lovecraft, and the fact that so many people, including Ollie Wyman, um, chose this as, you know, a starting point for for reading, it's not because there's nothing to it. There's something to it in the imagery itself that is deep within us that's... We don't know the answers, but we know that it's powerful, and we don't know why it's powerful, I think. It's the questions more than the answers that we don't get that propel us forward. Mm. Um, another thing that makes the story interesting in in sort of thinking why it why it might all be in his head mm-hmm. is um, when he travels over the surface of the land, he describes how everything is dead, right? All the, there's all these fishy things in the in the slime, um, and other things he won't describe, right? But then 
he also says there are no sea nowhere where there are sea fowl to prey upon the dead things. So there's no seagulls, there's no albatrosses, right? Sorry. There's nothing uh, that would eat these dead things in the bottom of the ocean. But then later on, when we're describing, he's describing the uh, the bas reliefs and the carvings on the giant phallus, um, which is white, by the way, just so you know, <laughs> in the in the moonlight. Um, this is this is the thing that struck me because it's a callback to that earlier walk through the water or walk through the the mire. Several characters obviously represented marine things which are unknown to the modern world. So I'm like, oh, dinosaurs, right? You know, dinosaur-y style water creatures. Right. But then he says, but whose decomposing forms I have observed, I had observed on the ocean risen plain. So if they're dinosaurs you know, dead dinosaurs in the bottom of the ocean or whatever it is, um, they're still de- decomposing? Is this really a vision of a present? Or is it sort of a vision of of of, of the past? Is this like the Doctor or, Who Silurians, you know? Or, yeah, or a vision. I mean, I mean but okay, so he goes from neither ship nor land appeared. I began to spare my thoughts upon heaving bats of silk, broken blue. The change happened while I slept. So mm. he, so he's in the boat, he sleeps, he wakes up, he's far away from the boat. Then he goes through all this horrible experience. Then he reaches the boat and he, he, you know, he remembers a storm and he's back in the boat when we, he comes back to, uh, mm-hmm. to consciousness. So it's true. It's, plausible to read this as a fever dream of lying on in the south pacific without enough water or under the blazing sun he imagined everything from the mire all the way to being picked up yeah that there was no that this was all fever dream right right you could even say the storm actually broke the dream think about this so if he's yeah. dying of dehydration yeah. in a boat good point a storm, a storm comes with water water wa- water resuscitates him and he regains his sanity well, he says that he, you know, he packs water and uh, food for his overland journey of three days, which is yeah, a long uh, way but, to but, walk. But that—that's—that's. But that's but all that is it within the dream. Your, that your is point. all within the dream. I mean, he said he had well provisioned, but you're in the middle of a South Pacific, dude. It's yeah. like how well? I mean, unless you're Captain Bly, yeah. you know, who managed, who managed to escape in a long boat after being thrown off uh, the bounty mm-hmm. and go a thousand miles. Unless you're Captain Bly, if you're alone on a boat, you. You're not going to be able to pack enough to survive. So I think I think yeah I think he went into a delirium. He could it's obviously he went into delirium, and the rain basically brought him out of it, and and then he was rescued. And everything from the mire to that that storm is all in his head. Do we have well, no he, we have no physical has, evidence otherwise? He still has food and water. Oh, that's in his dream, though, isn't it? Yeah. That's yeah. in his dream. So I, yeah, yeah I, I, I notice so, he won't eat any of those decaying fish, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm not going to eat those decaying. Although things. I'm pretty sure this all was real and happened just because I want it to be that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but you can argue either way. I mean, you, you you can take this as true fact of a horrible experience of a Lemuria Moo-like island rising out of the Pacific, showing ancient Chthonic creatures and and the worship to up to their god or you can say oh it's all in his head you can take it either way i i tend towards the more fantastic because i'm not that interested in 
in lit fic where it's all oh I imagined it, but yeah, you you can if you want to. I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, unlike a lot of other Lovecraft, this 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 story is ambiguous enough that you can actually say nope, it didn't happen. It's all in his brain. Whereas most of the rest of Lovecraft, yeah, things happen and it's horrible, dude. This is could, could just be a a fever dream if you want it to be. Yeah, well, the the, the paragraph uh, on the last page that has him basically saying, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure myself. Um, it's, it's wonderful. Listen to this. It is at night, especially when the moon is gibbous, and I imagine it's gibbous right outside the garret window there, mm-hmm. um, and waning, that I see the thing. I love that line. I, I, tried mo- I tried morphine, but the drug has given me only transient surcease. Uh, surcease of sorrow from the lost Lenore, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, always missing from the Lovecraft stories is the lost Lenore. Um, has drawn me into its clutches as hope, as a hopeless slave. So now I am going to end matters, having written a full account of the information of the, uh, for the, or, for the information or the contemptuous amusement of my fellow man. Often I ask myself if I could not. It, often I ask myself if it could not have been a pure phantasm. And does he answer himself is the question. A mere freak of fever mm-hmm. as I lay sun-stricken and mm-hmm. raving in the open boat after my escape from the German's man of war. This I ask myself, but ever does there be- come before me a hideous vivid vision in reply. So he sees the creature before him even when you know he's not actually out there on the plane. It, it, it's... It's like it manifests itself before him, right? Just like that hand before him is manifest of he, he. It's everywhere. He can't escape it. It's pretty. It's pretty terrific. I, I, well, one other thing I want to talk about this story because I was looking through some of the references to try to because he mentions Dory, like something out of Dory, and it's like, well, who's Dory? So I Google that. Who stopped Dory? Dory. And he, yeah, he was apparently a. Uh, wood engraving uh, French artist and Bulwer is probably Edward Bulwer Lighten, the, uh, yep. the English novelist. And Pil- I knew already know Piltdown Man, which right. is, which, which interestingly dates the story because Piltdown Man was a, uh, was a hoax, but mm-hmm. it had not been determined as a hoax for uh, like to the 1950s or 60s. So, wow. So yeah, it was a hoax for a while that the, 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 yeah, the, the, it was that, like 40 the, years or something. Yeah, wow. so that that shows us. Yeah, this story was clearly written and thought about after after it had been uh, first he had been first quote unquote discovered. I think oh Google says nineteen twelve, so that that gives a uh, a lower date to anything uh, as far as Lovecraft actually thinking about the story. But yeah, but it wasn't until like the nineteen. 50s that they also uh, references uh, Paradise Lost, which I also also Paradise. Yeah, so there's plenty of like, I mean, I mean, we've talked about before in previous Lovecraft shows about him wanting people wanting to think his stuff is good and feeling oppressed about his own uh, people's reception to his own work, and so we get that even in this story itself because Mm -hmm. what is he? Is he talks about? uh, Contemptuous amusement of my fellow men. Right. 
it, it even in this early, early, early story, we have that Lovecraft. So, like, well, won't people? Why, why don't people like what I write? It's hmm. full of references. It's full of all the stuff, and yet people <laughs> find it contemptuous. There's a real chip on the shoulder, even now, or or despair, maybe. I mean, is it contempt? I mean, contempt for other people, despair, yeah. self-loathing, even even in this early self-doubt, Lovecraft stage. Is, is yeah, self-doubt. Yeah. Even at the beginning here, Lovecraft isn't sure, and he. That's kind of sad. I mean, it, it's a it's a creative streak that drove his life, but drove his life to a relatively short output and end. I mean, the amount of his work. His output's I, actually huge. It's just almost none of it's commercial, right? Right. Uh, he also uh, vast sorry. book of poems. I've got a huge volume of poems, which nobody likes except for me. Uh, <laughs> we, we've done shows on those poems, Jesse. I, okay. I, I'm on record as liking them, so you can. You, yeah. you, you, you no, I mean, that. I'm just you know, in general, nobody goes around saying, "Oh, my poems," you know. <laughs> Nobody, nobody really likes, you know, aren't magazines full of poems everywhere? Well, we interrupted Marissa. Go for it. Oh, no, I interrupted you. Um, I was just going to say, he also mentions with this thing about the contempt of his fellow man, the the doctor, is it, that he talks to or the psychiatrist Mm -hmm. or something? He calls him hopelessly conventional, which I think is like, you can kind of see how he feels like he's got this fantastical mind and this huge imagination and it's probably like the lack of imagination and mm. all of his fellows that makes him feel so alienated from them yeah well i mean he is he's an he's a fucking alien i was reading mm-hmm. his um uh i was reading his wife's uh you know book about him and mostly mm-hmm. conducted through interviews and she she'd talk about how like she, she he was very thin so she'd feed him a lot uh, leave him, you know, lots of lunch and stuff like that. But um, she also said the first time uh, she invited him to visit her in the city, he brought his friend with with him, and then they went to an Italian restaurant. And he was about thirty at the time, never ne- had never been in an Italian restaurant before. Wow! Uh, quite, quite enjoyed the food. <laughs> it's like, yeah, this guy, this guy is like super homebody, right? Never going outside. Other other people had said, um, you know, they went to visit him and they're wandering through the streets of his own town. He's talking about all the architecture and, you know, all the history of it. And then the guy's getting really tired because they're, they're walking all the time. That's what Lovecraft does, right? He just walks everywhere. And says, let's go in here for lunch. And Lovecraft sort of haltingly agrees. They go inside and he Lovecraft watches him eat because he's never eaten in a restaurant before. Wow. <laughs> it's like that he is an alien. He is totally an alien. Just um and so yeah, you know, why open yourself up to ridicule uh unless, you know, you've got you've got a sort of a why why talk to the weirdos that, you know, that are hopelessly conventional. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's a problem. It's a problem. Because otherwise you, you yeah, you end up even weirder, right? Yeah. Yeah, you end up doing a Crispin Glover <laughs> move. <laughs> I mean, that guy's never going to be the lead in a film, and yet you really want him to be. I, I well, think he actually wait, did well, lead a couple of films, Willard. right? They made the movie. They made a remake of um, Willard about the yeah, rats. Yeah, I never right, saw that's it. Right. But, uh, yeah, and of course he's perfect. But yeah. it's so funny. You've, you've now painted this picture. I'm I'm imagining Lovecraft as this you know pale, gaunt, slender man that lives in his parents' basement. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, his parents' garret. Garrett. Yeah. Garrett. 
Yeah, and he—that's literally true, right? He he didn't live anywhere other than with his his mother and then his aunts until his wife swept him off his feet and took her to live with him. Uh, no, took him to live with her in in New York, right? Really? And then when that you know got to be a big deal, he went back and lived with his aunts again. He never like had a separate home other than you know with his family or with his wife. I didn't know that. I didn't yeah. know that. Wow. Yeah. I mean, he stayed on in, in uh, when she had to, his wife had to move to Chicago for a job. And I I was doing the numbers on this. Uh, she was earning the equivalent of $100,000 um, when she was in New York. So she, the reason she found out about him is because uh, she was a big fan of amateur journalism, what we would now call blogs, basically, <laughs> and podcasts. Uh-huh. Uh, where people do a l- whole lot of effort for almost no money, right? Um, and she was funding them. She was like pouring oh. her own funds into them in order to, you know, say this stuff's great. And then she finds this Lovecraft guy and invites him to come visit and then sweeps him off his feet, <laughs> proposes <laughs> to him, and blah, blah, blah. Um, so, yeah, it's it, 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 he is an alien. Um, he's fascinating because he allows us to see into his mind, into his dreams, right? It's, um, it, it, this is so echoey with later stuff as well, um, I think. Yeah. I can find that dreams quote. Oh, yes. Uh, let's see. Uh, here we go. That summer, Lovecraft wrote two stories. The Tomb, which is, I think, my favorite Lovecraft story. Um, so good. Uh, and the story was inspired in part by... Oh, and Dagon. The story was inspired by a dream I had. Quote, I dreamed that the whole hideous crawl, and you can feel the ooze sucking me down. He later wrote, critic uh, William says that Fishhead was an inspiration. I've read Fishhead. <laughs> uh, it's not that similar. Um, but uh, it is... Uh, other people say it's, you know... At the Earth's core has inspired it, but I think it's just the dream. I dreamed that the whole hideous crawl, and you can feel the ooze sucking me down. Right? Yeah, that's the that's the scene. He opens right with a him being waking, half sucked into the mire of this horrible black beach. Oh, by the way, you guys notice the sky is also black. The sun, yeah. Right. <laughs> That's like, awesome. I love that line. It is yeah. the upside down in a certain sense. It's not re- a reality uh, world in any yeah. sense. It's it's, it's not quite true. it's it's not Carcosa yet. He hasn't dreamed of Carcosa in the Lake of Holly, but it's kind of like on the way there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but mind you, everything he described about this place, like it's all horrible, disgusting, horrific stuff, but. I think the whole time I was reading it, I was like, I really want to go here. I really want to walk <laughs> um, around this place. Bring a gas like, mask. <laughs> yeah. ph- ph- photograph the monolith and, and get, a, get a zoom lens on the yeah. carvings. Oh, yeah. yeah. And the bones and the weird creatures and the weird sky. Like It just sounds yeah. like a really awesome place to visit. The monsters are a little bit scary, maybe. I don't know about seeing the monster like either humping or praying to the monolith or whatever it's doing. Clutching <laughs> <laughs> tightly. Action shots. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you'll forgive the rather ham-handed segue, but um, 
<laughs> I think that would be a great virtual reality environment to create. Yes. That's that that's just that's begging to be done. That's, you know, it's it's it, it, a lot of Lovecraft is because he almost nothing happens in terms of choices, right? Mm-hmm. In a Lovecraft story, everybody sort of sort of on rails. That you know that it's basically you know, blackout after blackout. And, and there's, well, there's not much you can do. It's like when I used to play the Lovecraft role-playing game and it's like, right. okay, you've got a pistol and there's a Mego. What do you do? Uh, Ron? I pistol the Mego. Nothing happens. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. Shoot the Mego and it gets mad at you and sprays you with the cold, with the, you know, cold right. way or whatever. Or, or yeah, yeah. Or you, your brain extracted. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Keep role playing. <laughs> but this is this is this is what I would I would love to see that I would love to yeah. see. A, a well, VR let's film. let's transition there. Um, I I do wanna I do wanna just point out that that, that in that Paradise Lost reference, mm-hmm. um, and to think about what the land looks like. He says, uh, through my terror ran the curious reminiscences of Paradise Lost and of Satan's hideous climb through the unfashioned realms of darkness. Right. So that, that, like, that's that's Satan coming out of yeah, at, crawling back up after he got hurled from heaven. It's right. in paradise. Unfashioned, off. as in unmade, right? Like God didn't get didn't do any work there. Yes. Primordial ooze. Yeah. And it's 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 pretty cool. Um by the way, there's a, a recurring theme in a bunch of other stories. Uh, one of his poems, um there's one called The Nightmare Lake, I think it's called I think that's his. Um, and then there's one called What the Moon Brings. I think that might be my favorite prose poem of his. Um, and basically, it's a recurring dream that he keeps writing about, which is a, a, a dude goes outside, sees that it's darkness, right? That the moon is the sun or something like that. And then he everything looks weird, and he follows a stream down to the ocean. And in the ocean, uh, these lotus petals are flowing down the river into the ocean. And the, when they go out... There's these seabirds circling over something in the water, and he thinks, oh, it's it's spires and castles sort of things, right, um, in the water. But actually, when the tide starts uh, going out, um, and he can start to see just below the surface of the water what it actually is, he realizes it's the brow of a giant statue, and oh, he goes awesome. mad. He goes mad. <laughs> He goes mad because if he sees what what is beneath the brow, it will be the end, and that's the end of the story. And it's like, wow, right? And it has all that stuff of the hideous, you know, stench of the sea and the the fish and all that. And that was a recurring dream. Uh, Yes, Uh, well, a recurring image in his poems and stories. So uh, it, it must have been a dream. Um, wow. And obviously, this is very similar to that in in you know the seeing what's beneath the surface of the ocean. It mm-hmm. is a pretty freaky idea, right? And I've gone swimming in black lakes, and when you can't <laughs> see your feet, you know, and you're touching stuff down there, it could be a piece of wood that's you know, or a, there are fish in there, and yeah, that yeah. fish brushed up against you. It it's a little bit freaky. That's actually scarier than the idea of all the water being gone and being able to see it all baking in the sun. Like I kind of right, like that idea, right. you know, like the water itself is much scarier. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Uh, Ollie, you you were uh, you're busy doing a book on VR, so well, VR I, is the hot new thing. 
I yeah, I've had I've had quite a week actually. I got to do two stories. Um, Blackstone Audio Publishing is is uh, doing an audio book of the first volume of Science Fiction Hall of Fame. Ooh, ooh, and, I have that. That's yeah. Great. And I got to do I got to I'm do a go Zelazny story. I got to know what. There you go. Yeah, no, you're psyched because um, I got to do two stories: uh, Jerome Bixby story and a Roger Zelazny story. The Zelazny story I was a little disappointed by, to be honest, but the Jerome Bixby story. It's one of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes. Oh, I know this one. You know this one. Public domain. That's uh, the library one, right? No, 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 no. Not the library one. Um, oh. It's a good day. It's oh, a, that's the little boy? One with, uh, with Billy Moomy from Lost in Space. Right. As, as the kid with mind powers. Yes. Right. It's one of my favorite Did stories. Did you do a Bill Moomy impression? Uh not so I, he doesn't i i don't know that no, he has he's, more he's than kind one. of straight up right yeah but it's 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 so much darker than obviously they it's they a good could. life yes it's a good life sorry it's a good life not a good day um but it it's it's wonderful and it's you know there's there's also the joe dante version that they did for the movie mm. in the 80s which is just totally removed from the story itself and, but, and more nightmarish i think yeah 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 the, oh yeah Definitely, but this is this is just wonderful. Anyway, so so I got to do that, which was a real treat, and I'm recording a book. I'm I'm about two thirds of the way through it now. Uh, a book called Dawn of the New Everything by Jerome Lanier, who is uh, considered by many to be the father of virtual reality. He certainly he's certainly the guy who came up with the term VR. Like he hmm. he was he was the guy that he's the reason we call it VR. Um, and he, he had a company in the, in 84 called VPL. They were the first company to make, uh, VR hardware. And, uh, as you can imagine, it was, they, 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 I think they sold the headsets for like $50,000. Yeah. Um, and, and I have, I have a PlayStation VR headset and I have, uh, uh, an HTC Vive um, and I have become completely enamored of the virtual world. I, I spend whatever free time I have. Wow. Um, yeah. And it's, it's just, it's, it's magnificent. It really is. It's, you know, this is, this is one of the technologies that's going to be a game changer. Our, mm-hmm. My children are going are gonna to grow up with this. I haven't, I don't let them, they're not quite old enough to use it yet. I don't want to, you know, mess with their visual development or anything like that <laughs> um but they're, they're 10 and 7 so i'm like yeah maybe in a few years how many hours yeah. are you going to restrict them to in like a couple of years it says, uh, only well, six hours a day children come on you have to come out every once in a while you can't eat only virtual food my wife is is a perfect foil for my uh <laughs> for my love of these things because she is she's very clear the children only get you know a little bit of screen time each day um and of course, I will use the argument that it's not a you know VR isn't a screen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, it's not actually a screen. But, <laughs> but I I mean I I am really trying to sell the spiritual aspect of this. This is you know it's 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 uh it's 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 really it's developing uh, skills in 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 a way. Uh, and brains. Um. <laughs> well, there's there's good psychology on like how good computer games in general and interactive games are. Like it's got to be way better than watching TV or something. Yeah. <laughs> 
something better than just passively sitting in front of a screen. Yeah. Precisely, because it's not, you know, you're you're full, at least with the Vive, it's a, you know, room scale VR setup. So you're you're picking things up off the ground and reaching up. And is I that was alternate reality or is that or augmented reality or is that full VR? That's Vive. full VR. Actually, the um, the system that Jerome has been working on as at Microsoft, which is a mixed reality system that was mm-hmm. just released, I think, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and that's, um, that's, they're now calling that mixed reality instead of augmented okay. reality. Huh. So you, where you have, the, there's a camera built into the, to the headset right. and you actually add things on to the real An overlay. Yeah. Um, and, and I, and, and Jerome seems to be of the mind that this is, this is the way of the, like mixed reality is actually better and harder to do than VR, which I, I get because you have to, you have to have more sensors, I assume, to, yeah. to add stuff onto reality. Um, mm. But I, I am, I am just so in love with it. It's mm. it, so. What games? What games are you playing? Like, are they games? Exactly. Yeah, there's, there's, there's mostly games, but there's a uh, Steam has a uh, there's a, a beta Steam VR uh, environment where you can where you can go to all these different environments, and there's. Uh, where the other day I was on the catwalk in in the bowels of Bespin, where wow. uh, where Ooh. where Luke got his hand cut off, and uh, and on that hand, <laughs> the vertigo the vertigo was was unendurable for me. Wow. I had to I, I was like okay I can't hang out in this place. <laughs> um, there's um, what oh the Simpsons somebody made the Simpsons living room. I sat in that couch. Weird. In the Simpsons it's living room, so looking great. at your TV. Oh, it's it's. I mean, it's it's so, magnificent. Really is. Is there well, enough? They're not, they're not um, games. They're ex- like experiences, right? It's both, right? It's yeah. But there, there's a for instance, there's a game called Audio Shield, which I love, and you're in you're in like an amphitheater, and you have two sort of luminescent. Uh, shields, one on each hand, one blue and one orange, and you play. You can pick whatever music you want, any MP3 you have on your computer, and then as the music plays, in time to the music, these spe- these orange and blue spheres rain down from the sky, and you have ah. to block them with the shields. And it is the most. It makes me feel like Doctor Strange. It really. Yeah. It really makes me feel like I'm in a Steve Ditko illustrated Doctor Strange comic, and I'm I'm you know. Fighting the forces of, I'm 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 invoking the hoary hosts of Hoggoth. <laughs> but it's it's just it is it is the most you know I I escapism is my thing. I love I love being I love losing myself in a book or a movie or a game to the point where I'm I'm fully immersed. You know to the point where I I, I uh, when, when I was a kid years and years ago. Um, I used to play Aces of the Pacific, an old PC mm, computer I love game. that game. Yeah. And oh, I, yeah. I, I, I lived for that. There was one, one time I played the game and I had turned all the lights off and I just, I just, I, I felt like I'm, I'm a rookie pilot in 1943 flying over the Pacific and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm in a Corsair and there's a bunch of Zeeks coming after me and mm. oh, it's just that's that's what i live for that's why that's why i'm an actor because i'm i'm like i can so easily i could so easily fool myself i can so easily pull the wool over my own eyes and, and <laughs> yeah. go yeah I, this is real i'm i'm with that and and so vr is just a natural thing 
You know, back so in I was 19- waiting. Oh, um, sorry, go for it. Go for it. I was just going to ask. Um, I was waiting to get the VR. Like, I really want to get into VR, but I wanted to wait until there was enough to keep playing with it. Like, I didn't want to have, like, that was an amazing game, and now there's nothing else to buy for, you know, there's not enough games to keep on playing it. Yeah, I was t- But so there's enough now that I should, oh, like, yeah. upgrade the PlayStation to the VR and... I would I if you can if you've got a computer that that can that can do it I would go for an Oculus or a Vive. Um, the Oculus you can actually get the Oculus with touch controllers for 400 bucks right now, and the mm. Vive is the Vive is a bit more. Um, and as apparently the Oculus has better. Uh, I think the resolution is a little better on on the Oculus. But th- uh, that said, that they have like there's a Star Trek game mm. that'll blow your mind. You, you know you're sitting. I mean. I I was at the helm of the the Enterprise, and my friend wow. was captain. I kept looking over my shoulder, and he's talking. His lips are moving as he talks to me, and and he's like, All right, and I had to figure out how to fly the Enterprise, you know, by the seat of my pants. And then, uh, oh, and um, is it next month or in December? Uh, Fallout Four VR comes out. Wow, oh, it's going to be crazy. <laughs> yeah. I, I I knew that was going to get Jesse's attention. I know Psychonauts has a VR game as well. I want to play. Fallout oh, 4 VR, what, that'll be weird, man. Yeah. How do, can you do the, uh, you press the V button and get into the, you know, the mode where everything freezes? Cause that oh, yeah. Be, oh, wow. Oh, yeah, it's going to be like that. And then, you you know, go for your headshot. <laughs> See, I only experienced virtual reality for the first time like a couple of months ago. And all I did was like cook an egg and wash dishes for ages. And it was the most <laughs> fun I'd had. <laughs> Like, I was very like, domestic, Marissa. Yeah, because I just like I've never had so much fun washing dishes because they're fake and it was all just like cartoony and oh my god, could do that for hours. So I can't even imagine these like full experiences in a full blown game like Fallout or something. Oh yeah, the the thing that I I re- there's a game uh, it's still in early access, but there's a game called Vanishing Realms, which is a dungeon crawler, and just hacking at something with a sword using a shield and a sword. And and real fight mechanics. Like, yeah, the know. physics is amazing in those things. Like it's crazy. It really is. It really is. And, and it's like I said, it's it's ready. So I, I urge you, come join yeah, us. Sounds good. I'm into it. <laughs> um, you guys will have I, to be on Steam. I, my my only experience with like I sort of dismissed it uh, because my only experience with VR was in 1991. I went to London uh, on a trip to Europe I, and. You know, Back I'm there. visiting London, and they had Leicester Square, and I go to the theaters there, and then I go to the Penny Arcade, and then they had a regular arcade, which I was a big fan of in the 80s. But they had one machine there that was it was a VR machine, um, but it was a cockpit, so you put this massive huge helmet because it, it's like no <laughs> LCDs back then, right? So this yeah. thing it would like it pushed the hell on your your bridge of your nose and had a massive weight out the back but you could sit in this cockpit with you know on the right hand side you've got a joystick on the left hand you've got a throttle and you could turn your head left or right and look up and down and around to see the other airplanes and such and it was like two pounds i think to play uh one game for about 30 seconds yeah i i, I spent about 50 pounds <laughs> <laughs> but it was just so like huge and clunky and of course like the machine didn't move either there was no gimbals or anything so that's i've, I've always thought it's gonna be like that it's just like i'm sitting at my desk and i look around i've got a big monitor why do i need to have a bigger monitor right 
but it sounds like it's more immersive than that. Um, oh, it and, really is. And, and and more maybe, you know, those are probably vector graphics back then that were pretty weak. Nineteen ninety one. That's um, I. I played I played something called Dactyl Nightmare back then. It was actually it was in a movie theater in uh-huh. the city, and it was a two player um, shooter, VR shooter. But there mm-hmm. were pterodactyls flying. All it was called yeah, Dactyl Nightmare. Uh-huh. Um, nice. And it was it, it, the graphics looked. Uh, the first thing I thought when I got in was oh it's it's um, money for nothing. It's the the Dire Straits oh, right, video. Do you right, remember right. that? Yeah. The old like cartoon know, CGI, yeah. like you know, eight bit blocky um, Max computer Headroom graphics. Exactly. Graphics. Not yeah. even. Yeah. But uh, it's. I mean, it it is so. Oh, and and as far as like the flying thing, um, what is it? <sighs> There's not Eve Online. That's for the PS4. But the um, What's it called? Elite Dangerous. Oh yeah. That's oh yeah, game. yeah. The spaceship game. That is amazing. Hmm. That is just that alone is worth the price of admission for for a VR. Well, I know, I want to join this church. That's for sure. Please, <laughs> please join us. Please. <laughs> we need more converts. And I'm I, I hang. I have a buddy that we we do all kinds of stuff. Oh, the, that's the thing in the in the in the Steam VR environments. They have quests every week. There's yeah, like so they're multiplayer six. too, right? Yeah, yeah. You can oh, totally that's cool. go into the environments and hang out with people. There's one where you can ski down a mountain, but uh, they've uh, the one is uh, you're you're under London Bridge. You're just by the the you know the, the shore of the Thames there, and uh, there are all these all these incredible places. But you go, you can you get. Um, what do you call it? Like a, a cat? It's called a cash finder. It's this little, this little tool that you can use to divine where the um, where this cache is, and you can you get like a, a for each environment has a different surprise for you each week. Um, I, you know, I just love this stuff. I can't mm. get. So please, I urge you, come join me. And by the way, <laughs> I am, I am can all, on uh, Steam or. Uh, or PlayStation, and please, I, anybody wants to friend me, I'm, I'm looking for people to play with. Mr. Coffee, spelled M-R-K-A-W-F-Y. That's your name on everything? That's my name, that's my name on the internet. I used to, back yeah. in the days of Quake. Um, ah. Oh, wow, that is old school. This is, yeah, no, I, I actually, I, I don't know if I told you guys, I used to be the interactive entertainment editor for Cream Magazine back in, like, oh. 1990. Um, Back and there were when, magazines. Yeah, and was it when when Doom came out? I got it the first day and wrote a wrote a piece about it. Tried to you know, get the world, get the mainstream world into Doom. Hmm. Um, that would be, make a good VR just as it was, you know. Back that's, uh, that's what I want because oh, the, the sounds, the the sounds of that ra- sort of I, I want to say raunchy sort of however it goes, you know, like that Doom. <laughs> theme in your ears and you look around and there's those horrible monsters screaming at you um you'll oh. get your pump action shotgun out for sure uh, that's that is tremendous i i'm i i want that desperately i've been playing um what is it serious sam mm. yeah that's uh that's a vr one right yeah yeah that's and that the, the chainsaw is ridiculously oversized in that it's a lot of fun <laughs> <laughs> well we need we need more lovecraft 
stuff yeah. in, the, in well, DR Worlds. Go bring it back, scary, though. Bring, bring it back to Dagon since we went way, way off the track. Yeah. <laughs> well, the I was I was thinking of going back to Fallout because I was I was seeing you know there was that Far Harbor expansion, and that yeah. was supposed to be I think people were saying it was supposed to be Lovecraftian, right? Because it, it it goes to Maine and it's all fishy. <sighs> Did you? Did anybody play Far Harbor? I haven't. No. I haven't. Okay. I stopped playing. I actually stopped playing Fallout when I found out that the VR version was coming out because I was like, fine, I'll I'll finish this. Soon. Yeah, that would be interesting. I yeah. did notice a couple of like Lovecrafting things near like some ocean area there, but it looks like it wasn't. It wasn't like completely Lovecraft. It was kind of like well, hinted at. There's some. There's in on the land. There's some definite Lovecraft. Well, there's. There's a whole house that is Pikmin's model. Oh yeah, yeah, I did. And that's that really freaky. Um, and then there's uh, the the Dunwich Borers, which is like a mine. And if you go deep down into that, there's like a some knife that I don't know is possessed, and <laughs> <laughs> you go you go nuts going trying to get it. Um, cool. I, Wait, so my main problem with the Fallout is it's so long. Sorry. Is there? Did you get to see the, the the painting in Pikmin's model? Oh yeah, there's a whole bunch of paintings. Oh. Yeah. And there's notes all over the place, and you get the sense that this guy's just a serial killer, <laughs> who um he's painting in blood basically. Wow. Yeah, and and you're not the only one in that house either. There's a, like a whole bunch of raiders who, they're like they they have their sheet they're freak, no, they're shit freaked. You know, they're like. <laughs> Not happy to be in there because you know <laughs> if you overhear them, they're like, "What are we doing in here?" <laughs> <laughs> and there's and then there's this overlay of the of the guy hunting them with the sound, you know, uh, it's pretty scary. It's a it's a really creepy, scary game, and I I only stopped playing it because it's such a time sink. You know, you sit. I would literally sit down at you know oh uh, six p.m. And then I'd wake up at three o'clock in the morning, and like I'm just like eyes blurry, and I'm like well, I have to work tomorrow. <laughs> my, my problem with all the Bethesda games, with that and Skyrim, is is inventory management because I spend so oh, much time. Yes. Well, oh, like, yeah. I'm gonna need this apple later, so I want to hold on right. to that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it was exacerbated by the first time I played. I, I it had been so long since I played Fallout Two, I'd forgotten that caps were anything. So I was like, what the fuck, bottle caps? I'm not taking that. <laughs> and then I'm like, when I realized that bottle caps were the thing I needed, I was like, okay, I'm never losing anything now. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, is a, it is a bane on your existence. And um, that's kind of one of the things I like about PUBG is, you know, unlike, you know, every other shooter game where you can basically take 15 weapons, you can only take three. Or no four because there's a man like you can get a frying pan right, but there's, there's a two two long rifles and a and a pistol and that's it, but you can actually see them physically on your body, um when you're running around you can see other people carrying them and so you see somebody like with a a mask and a a weapon on their back like you're not gonna head towards that guy you're gonna run away right, um inventory management is is the bane of a lot of games I think yeah because yeah. I, li- I, think- I I like not having to do that in real life and now i'm doing it <laughs> exactly like cooking scrubbing my vir- virtually scrubbing my fl- my house's floors i'd rather not scrub my own <laughs> floors i also in games like fallout i usually listen to 
sometimes an audiobook or podcast while I'm playing mm-hmm. it. So, but then I have to always pause it for the inventory stuff because you have to like think so hard sure. about what you're doing. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah. yeah, I can't concentrate on this. I need yeah, to figure out. Like, yeah, it's like 15 minutes. It's like now I have to sit here for 15 minutes and sort out all this junk. <laughs> well, my my computer can. I've got a you know fast enough video card and processor to run VR, but I don't know if I can actually run. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! You know what? It's not as bad as I thought. I I had to, I got a whole new computer to to run it basically. Did you? And and it. You got a 1080. Uh, it's I I think it's a 1060 actually. Oh, uh, maybe that's the old one. But the thing is, is I, I installed it on both my machines before, and then it it wasn't running on a, either one at a acceptable frame rate. Mm-hmm. But uh, I got my old one running after an update on to the video card. You know software so it's running on everything now i've got it running oh. on three machines so i don't right, well, have any I, vr yet but you guys can come over and we can we can pub g in a squad <laughs> it's a deal sounds good i think we're pretty close to an end of the show by the way I, yeah, I thought, it was a double uh, show double double right. games double show it's <laughs> only a 15 minute story come on <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.